I love that you're bringing a very high level of, uh, thank you for reading the book so closely and thank you for taking this conversation to an intimate and kind of challenging place. Like, I think this, these are great points. I think I, I, you may not be surprised to learn, I think there are important differences between myself and Jimmy Savile. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is documentarian and BBC presenter Louis Theroux. He's one of my absolute favorite documentary filmmakers. just a tremendous character for 25 years he's been making films and he just came out with a book called gotta get through this um, i've been trying to get louis on the show forever and I'm, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of his and a pen pal over the years and even with his dad uh not that long ago consulted him for something i was working on um but i really wanted to to have a chance to i've spent hundreds of hours watching Louis' films and reading the book is a kind of Rosetta Stone into the connective tissue to autobiography with Louis and I'd never seen that before, had that that insight and brought it to Louis and um, thankfully he didn't just cut off the interview. I think think it went a pretty interesting place and he appreciated a, a close reading of his book even if Unfortunately, it seemed to sort of put him on the couch a little bit with some of my pop psychology. So apologies for that. It's just uh, I do get gleeful having the opportunity to talk to some of my favorite characters that exist out in the culture. And Louis has been that since I first saw his films. Incredible amount of material of subcultures and subjects. And he is a genius at revealing them and, and revealing us. So I hope you enjoy Louis Theroux. I'm thrilled to share this with you. I'm in London. I've been in London more or less since lockdown began back in March. And I, you know, when lockdown hit, there was a, a weekend when we planned an ambitious shoot in which we were going to kick off two different documentaries um, in America. And I was due to fly on the Tuesday and we had a frantic conference call on the Friday in which I was lobbying to say like, we can still get in there. Like if we fly, you know, you know, it'll be fine. Like this is a, this will blow over. We'll get out there. In fact, maybe it's a good thing in as much as, We'll be out there working and other people will be kind of playing it safe and we can get in there and scoop up a whole bunch of material. Anyway, over the course of the weekend, it became clear that that was not realistic. So we canceled everything. And then for the last uh, however many months I've been in London working on other projects, trying to figure out when we can next get back to the U.S. Because hmm. I had a lot of friends seeing you around Hollywood seeing you at coffee shops and that kind of thing. So I wondered, I, I know you were there for the Scientology documentary, but I wondered, yeah, if that was a new home base for you. You mentioned it in the book also. Well, I, I, you know, we, I think I mentioned in the book, so we, when was it? Like, we had a, a change of scene to kind of partly related to making 
my Scientology movie and partly more, maybe more related to uh, the need for a change and my wife specifically being fed up with the British weather and the British winters. So in 2013 and 20, most of 2014, we were in, in Los Feliz. And then we went back for a second helping in 2017 slash 2018. So I will have been around Los Feliz, Silver Lake, uh, that neck of the woods quite a bit around then and in coffee shops, yes, probably. And, um, and then we came back. So since then we've been back here more or less for the last two years, best part of two years we've been here. Mm. How's the pandemic been treating you? Is this not just your work, but just in general? Yeah. Well, as a sort of student of human nature and a student of weirdness generally, like it's kind of verboten to say this, but there's parts of it that I found really interesting. You know, there's a sense in which um, I tend to focus on the constellations because I guess it goes without saying that it's it, it's it's obviously dreadful and um. There's parts of it that have been maddening and and um, but I also see like there's there's I've enjoyed, you know, as, as someone born in 1970, right, who, who's never been part of uh, a generation that had to, you know, be conscripted. That was, you know, there, there's been many wars, but no world wars. And I sort of think I've been blessed to be, you know, part of a kind of relatively quiet you know, period of human history, certainly in the West, compared with the big, you know, the big picture, right? And so to, to be alive when this global tidal wave of, of um, weirdness has kind of crashed over us, I found really interesting, especially because I didn't see it coming. It seemed to come out of nowhere, right? And I think as far as me on, on the home front, I, like I, I've enjoyed being around the family. I've enjoyed sort of um, you know, I just like, sometimes I just enjoy being forced into change and being forced to adapt. So, you know, and I, this is something I talked to John Ronson about. Do you know John at all? Yeah, I listened to your shows with staying at home with Louis here. <laughs> yeah, so John was saying that as someone who's kind of clinically anxious, he found it paradoxically reassuring when something dreadful happened. Because it was just like, okay, you know, I don't have to worry about this anymore because it's happened, right? Right. And there's a sort of paradoxical effect, which, and I think I've had a little bit of that, which is the feeling of, oh, all those low-level anxieties to do with um, planning your weekend, right? You know, do we go to the museum or are we going to call friends? Are we going to go out and go to a like a party and all of those which cause like sort of s small tremors of um of anxiety that's all gone like you wake up in the morning your day is so simple like you just have to plan the meals and you're going to be doing a lot of loading and unloading the dishwasher so all of that i've quite i kind of appreciated this the, the enforced simplicity and all of those things that we were told we should do by people like Greta Thunberg and others, that feeling of like, simplify your life, like just do things based at home. Enjoy being part of um, your family and your immediate circle of friends who live nearby. Like to be forced into that 
had had its had its pleasures as well. So all of that feels pretty good. Like so, I don't know. Feel I think I've I've been one of the lucky ones in that respect. I think the part of it that I found difficult was, well, maybe the same thing, which is to, to be told that you are supposed to be a kind of income generating uh, person and also look after your kids and you know do the laundry, do all the daily domestic response, you know, chores and also um i don't know it's just it's just too much it's not actually a, a practical it's not a realistic and achievable aim hmm. i i can't wait to talk to you about this book because i mean you talking about being at home with your family that was a subject your internal life your private life that i'd never i realized that there was an odd parallel with jimmy savile and i apologize to compare you to this horrendous Predator, but one aspect of him and you that I'd never thought of before is how opaque you are and yet how familiar. There's some things which are readily available about you from your program, which I and so many others fall in love with, but there's a, a very enigmatic quality that you have that he has also. There's something so immediately available and then so much in reserve at the same time. Um, so I wondered embarking on this book on those aspects of sharing yourself was that uncomfortable was it gratifying to reveal it how did it feel uh well i think uh it first of all thank you for comparing me to jimmy savile you're welcome we've just met so it seemed appropriate to start off on a high note if nothing else comes to this conversation you know <laughs> we've shared that um i would say I, I, I came of age in the, you know, in, in the TV landscape at a time when it was viewed as kind of deeply naff. Naff is, do you know the term naff? Like kind of cheesy and, and cheesy and goofy to, in, the, to um, show too much of yourself. Like that, that was what kind of low-level celebrities did was kind of do photo shoots in Hello Magazine or participate in the mechanism of the celebrity. So I always resisted that, and I admired people like uh, the prankster Chris Morris, later on Sasha Baron Cohen, and then people like, um, I suppose, Banksy as well, who for, around whom there was a kind of a mystique to do with you never felt like you knew them too well. So I was, well, that's how people, that's the classy way to play it, right, is that you don't give too much away. Plus, as a journalist, I always thought, well, I'm supposed to really not be, you know, I'm part of the story in a kind of somewhat gonzo way, but I'm not the story. Like, I'm only as part of the story in so far as I can reveal a little bit about what's going on. So the, um, but I think, you know, in the end, in the act of writing it, I realized, like, actually, the programs already exist, and there's only so much that I can add to those, right? And that, in fact, you know, I, sh I needed to apply the same lens that I would apply to um, one of my subjects, you know, whoever that might be, to myself. Like, I had to see myself at home. I had to get into my own bedroom. You know, I always used to say when I was making programs, um, you know, I used to try and get into the bedroom, right? Figuratively, but literally, like, what, I went into Jimmy Savile's bedroom, right? Uh, um, I wanted to, I didn't get in there, but I tried to get into Anne Widdicombe's bedroom and, you know, across the board with all the stories I did, 
It was about figuring them out in the most intimate and domestic way. And I sort of, I think I, ne I needed to do that to myself, but it, I didn't, it took me a while to realize that. And it was, was it uncomfortable? Um, a little bit. Like, I think, the, but I, you know, I'm, I'm creatively kind of ambitious. I wanted the book to work and I wanted it to hang together. And I, as I went along, it took me a while to realize that I needed to, in every sense, expose myself. You know, well, and I, I brought up Savile earlier because I think your work is with the book. I can see the autobiography in a way that I couldn't before. So, for example, please indulge me. I don't mean to put you on the couch here. Okay. <laughs> but when you say of Jimmy Savile, there is a rat. He is a rather remote figure, annoying, self-involved. But those negatives existed alongside more surprising qualities of intelligence and acuity. I suspect some of your critics said similar things of you. Yes. Yes. But there, yeah, go on, go on. Is that it? Because that's a great observation. Were you going to add it? And similarly with the boxer Chris Eubanks, you say, he says, did you find my chink? Which is what a lot of people are trying to do with you. The chink was his armor. His obsessive need for self-protection was a weakness he needed to overcome. This book, again and again, that is your theme about yourself. I love that you're bringing a very high level of, uh, thank you for reading the book so closely, and thank you for taking this conversation to an intimate and kind of challenging place. Like, I think this, these are great points. I think I, I, you may not be surprised to learn, I think there are important differences between myself and Jimmy Savile. And I don't mean that deeply. Like, I, I, I think what I have is a, I, I have a kind of, um, what is it? I kind of, I kind of hide in my programs. Does that make sense? Like, in my documentaries, and, and what I say elsewhere in the book is that, for me, a big part of the enjoyment of making documentaries is that it affords me a kind of invisibility, Right. And, and specifically, and, and, and the kind of invisible, the most valuable kind of invisibility, which is that I'm invisible to myself. Right. Right. That lack of, I become unself-conscious because I, and, and I am immersed in the, um, in the world or in, or even in the persona or in the obsessions of someone else. And that can be a very relaxing place to be, to surrender to someone else. And um, so, and so whereas Jimmy Savile, what he, he seemed to be someone who enjoyed being permanently um, on display, obviously not his full persona and his, you know, he was keeping important parts of what he was held back, but he just liked, he, he really enjoyed the sound of his own voice and he enjoyed having an audience and he enjoyed just provoking and, and kind of just being part of a, um, uh, just being, just having a, a kind of court that he could play to. Right. Yeah. And, um, obviously for me, it's something quite different. No, and I, I didn't mean to compare that aspect. I'm just comparing you like if I look at your book in a, in a way that, let's say, Ernest Hemingway's A Movable Feast has been looked at in, ter in terms of the allocation of subject matter, Savile takes up the bulk of this more than your wife, more than your children, more than any other character. 
And a few of the lines that you quote with great specificity, some places you don't where I think you would remember something that your wife said something publicly about you that was critical, you mention it, but not specific. You say, I think it was this or this or this. Savile, you nail it. It clearly reached you. And the comment was, call me when you have your, your nervous breakdown. And the next was a put down where he criticized you and said, uh, inauth I think, inauthenticity. Insincerity, I'm sorry. Yeah, your speciality, yeah. Yes. So I thought as opaque as he is, he is hitting you in a way that is resonating. He is seeing some part of you that maybe you don't want to be seen, but it resonated. I don't know whether he hit the mark in some way, but you talk about negging in the book, and it seems like he's kind of grooming you through negging stuff that is sticking in a way that these other subjects are not saying things to you. You're quoting what you said to them often, but with Savile, it's like you talk about the, the entered into a, a strange, mutually parasitic, quasi-friendship, quasi-deep cover investigation into his dark side, but he's throwing some barbs at you into your dark side. That is not the persona of Louis that I thought was very interesting. Well, I and love this. This is great, man. But you started with a, you know, I love um, A Movable Feast, and I reread the first 100 or so pages about six months ago, and um, but I wasn't sure what the comparison there was. Were you going to, I thought you were going to oh, mention yeah. So, so that in there, you, you have is its character assassination is the primary drive of the book. Anybody who would challenge his legacy or undermine him being full-blown from the brow of Minerva. Gertrude Stein, three chapters. Need to assassinate her, undermine her relationship with Alice B. Toklas, and then Fitzgerald needs three chapters to go after his penis size, challenge him. His inability, he's like, his main beef with Fitzgerald seems to be like he's a bad drunk, right? There's so, so much detail that's gone into when they go for a, a, like a little a little driving vacation, right? Right. And there's the level of detail about how much they drink and uh, and Fitzgerald's kind of a wuss seems to be the point. Can't handle his liquor. His wife is crazy and dominating him. But my point just being is it's always instructive, of course, what we omit and what we choose and the allocation of material is an interesting way just to look into how you prioritized what was meaningful for you to address. I don't know those answers, but I did want to, um, as a Canadian, where we threaten nobody, try to just ask you some of this, because I was intrigued. And by the way, there is a kind of prosaic um, answer to that, which is maybe not very satisfying, but is the truth, which is that I, I started out by imagining this book might be about Jimmy Savile, right? And I. And I, I, I write about this in the afterword to the paperback edition. There is, I wrote about 30,000 words all about Jimmy Savile, partly on the advice of my, my dad, funnily enough, mm. who, as you know, is a writer. And he was like, you know what? Just write all the Jimmy Savile stuff first because that's the bulk of what people are going to be finding interesting. Also, at this stage, I was thinking of it as a, either a book of, that was about my relationship with Jimmy Savile or a book that was a kind of a professional memoir right in which i would figure out what the themes were but the themes would be i i saw it in a somewhat you know i admire john ronson's writing a lot and i thought oh it's going to be kind of ronsonian in some way and i'll figure out later on how it all ties together but clearly there's some link between 
these subjects. And I, you know, I don't quite know what it is. And so my dad says, do Jimmy Savile, having written 30,000 words about Jimmy Savile, I sent them to my publisher and she said, yeah, um, this is great, but I'm not sure how interest, you know, how saleable Jimmy Savile is as a, as a main focus, right? If you're going to do it all about Jimmy Savile, I think she was thinking like, you know, the, the British public, the British readership is not going to want to buy this in large quantities. You know, like a picture of Jimmy Savile on the cover, like Jimmy Savile, the Jimmy Savile I knew by Louis Theroux. Like, I think they imagined like they had bought, they, when they bought the book, that, you know, when they signed me to write it, I think they thought it'll be like, um, well, to be fair, like, I don't want to mischaracterize their position, but I think the dream scenario for them was, you know, Louis Theroux, you know, and, and my, my kind of strange life, which is, I guess, where I arrived, but something that was personal and kind of like fun and, you know, my wacky adventures by Louis Theroux, right? And, and, and so when I came to rewrite and refocus, I realized, well, first of all, this isn't going to be a John Ronson kind of book. This, the only thing tying a lot of this together is my journey. So I have to show up in this book. Like the, th the only thing tying this together really meaningfully is me. So I need to, um, the, I need to be the backbone. My dad said, um, you need to write about your upbringing. Like I showed him an early draft. He's like, you've got nothing in here about growing up. I was like, oh, yeah, maybe you're right. So I, I wrote like three or four chapters about growing up and my sort of anxiety prone childhood. And then the other part of it is, with Jimmy Savile, clearly, I have so much. I took notes whenever time, whenever he called up, I would take notes. I have obviously the program. So there's a lot of direct speech anytime Jimmy Savile shows up because I, I have records of what was said. Clearly, I don't have that with many with a lot of other characters that are closer to me, like my um, the character I call Sarah, who was uh, I was, you know, covers the relationship in the first half of the book. And also, fi final point. I was mindful of not intruding on the privacy too much of those who might not want to be in the book, right? Jimmy sure. So I, I have to be, you know, and I have a chapter about my wife and my relationship with my wife. I mean, in fact, a couple of chapters really about Nancy, but clearly I, I had to get her sign off on those. And um, if I had to write it um, over, like if I had another year, I, you know, I think I would probably uh, put more personal stuff in it. And I don't know if I'd lose any of the Savile stuff, but maybe I would. When I, you know, I go on Goodreads. Do you ever look at yourself on Goodreads? Unfortunately. It's kind of like unvarnished feedback because it's like what people say about you when they think you're not listening, right? But we do. And we check in and we're like, oh. And then you can even go like, if you're feeling low, you're like, I'm going to do it and I'm just going to click on only show me the five-star reviews. But as you know, you can also click on it and say, like, I'm just going to look at the one- and two-star reviews if you're feeling masochistic, which you can do. Or you can just be kind of playing Goodreads roulette and be like, I'm going to read whatever pops up. Um, and the, the main criticism seems to be um, too much Jimmy Savile. Too much Jimmy Savile. I thought there was just enough Savile. I just... Okay. May I begin where I had kind of laid out because we just started talking. I don't know how much time you have, so I need to allocate a little bit to try to get in what I can. Okay. If, I mean, I've, I've put an hour aside if that works for you. So if we could be done around 6.15, that would be great. That gives us another 35 minutes. Okay. Okay. Um, 
first place to start, this was meant to be my gentle opening instead of comparing you to Jimmy Savile. Um, our friend Milan Kundera. Yeah. Uh, we all need someone to look at us. We can be divided into four categories according to the kind of look we wish to live under. I was going to see which category you would see yourself as. Are you familiar with this passage or I can... I have read that, but it was many years ago, so I know I don't remember that passage. The first category longs for the look of an infinite number of anonymous eyes, in other words, for the look of the public. The second category is made up of people who have a vital need to be looked at by many known eyes. The third category, the category of people who need to be constantly before the eyes of the person they love. And finally, the fourth category, the rarest, the category of people who live in the imaginary eyes of those who are not present. I found after reading your book, I thought of that and I wondered, it, was, it just seemed like the first thing to ask you because I'm not sure. They're, they're kind of pieces of all, all four. Yeah, I, I, you know, there isn't a, all of those sounded pretty good. <laughs> uh, except weirdly, number three, like in that strip, like, but but I don't know if I'm being completely honest with myself. Like number three is the eyes of the one you love, which seems the most admirable and the most perfect, right? The idea of a kind of mutual love and the need to be loved by the person who knows you the best. That would be the most healthy, which perhaps some, um, uh, but I, I I tend to feel as though if I want to get really self-flagellating because I sometimes have a sort of um, a, a very occasional like a kind of insecurity, right? Uh, and, I, you know, and this is a part of myself that I don't endorse, but I, I suppose I have to recognize that I, people, and I talk about this in the book, I, I, I kind of, I, because um, I sometimes see the worst in myself, that anyone who has a high value for me, like I tend to undervalue that, right? Does that mean to like, what's wrong with you? It's a kind of, I guess, an extension of the old Groucho Marx maxim, you know, like if someone would love me, like what does that say about them, right? You know what I mean? Well, so, negging, that's why I say the negging is Savile, you quote, and Sarah in the book you quote is saying there's nothing real about you. Those hit. When it's negative, but I don't hear any of the flattery of yourself that you're seen by millions of people. You've been seen by hundreds of millions of people over the course of your You're breaking up. Can you hear me? Oh, we lost. We're back. I'm sorry if I don't know if we cut out there for a second. I heard hundreds of millions. Uh, I think I got the gist, which is, uh, uh, yeah, I guess in the end, um, if, you know, if you, I think in the end, if you, um, there's something about an anonymous mass where, um, for what it's worth, or like, you know, it was unknown, I think, unknown eyes and known eyes. I like both of those, but a multiplicity yeah. of eyes, a lot of eyes. You know what I mean? What? I just thought it was interesting that you are somebody that's contended with the narcotic of potentially a hundred million eyes have looked at you and watched you age and followed you. Um, most of us only have that attention from our parents where the photographs are a document of their eyes watching us. You have it with all these strangers that you'll never meet. Yes, I do. 
I, and uh, I wish I could say that, um, it, you know, that that's just goes with the territory and it has nothing to do with me. But I, have, I think I have to admit that there's a part of that that I enjoy. I am guilty of, um, you know, doing that thing on Twitter where you're like, what are people saying about me? And, you know, uh, I'm susceptible to the, those kinds of like um, tawdry vanities. So uh, I was just thinking when you're talking about a lot of eyes, though, like wolves, there's certain kinds of spiders that have lots of eyes. Like, I wonder if that would work just as well. What creature do you think has the most eyes? Don't spiders or, or fruit flies have a, are their eyes like a million fly eyes? <laughs> there you go. So just do it with spiders. But, you know, I think, um, but, you know, in all, but the other part of it is, um, what is the other part of it? You can't spend too long thinking about other people looking at you. I mean, it's it's a fun it's a fun thing to enjoy in, in small doses, you know. And then and then it goes. Like the, the thing is, like when you have a, it's the nature of television, right? You have a program that goes out. It might be seen by two million people, right? That's four million eyes, because some people will only have one eye. But some might have three, right? Hearing impaired as well. I mean, it's a sense of an eye. So uh, you put a book out, or an eye, you know, if you put a book out, if you sell fifty thousand, that's considered to be pretty good. I mean, it's an extraordinary. I'm not. I, I, you know, I drifted into TV like having a kind of a fugitive from print because. I knew that was what my, my dad would want me to be writing articles and writing books. I knew that was what I was supposed to do was kind of take over the family business. And I, and, and at the same time, I, I, I kind of, at some level, I couldn't bring myself to do it. And what's extraordinary, I don't know if you've done much TV, Bryn, but it's like taking on superpowers, you know, suddenly with what seems like very little effort, you could have a huge impact. You can strain and sweat over an article, right? An 800 or 2,000 word article and you put it out and it's, if you're, you're lucky if one or two people say, I really enjoyed that. Mm. And then you work with someone on a TV show. Anyway, it's a, it's a very strange disparity. Well, let's get at that in the prism of, of where I was headed, which is, <clears throat> I wonder about the burden for you of, you talk about your father with the great railway bazaar hitting at 34 and suddenly he has literary celebrity probably at the end of where you could have literary celebrity. Um, you have suddenly the privilege of au pairs, private education. You're on your way to Oxford, one of the most prestigious educations one can, can get. Um, but this burden of your father being somebody very special and there's an interesting dichotomy that I identified in the book of that young Louis wants to be recognized not for any achievement but for who he is. He, he said, I want to be just taken and, and identified as somebody special and later on when you're identified as somebody special you're saying, have I earned it? And I thought, what's changed in him? And so I wondered just to start, how are you, you have three kids you talk about in the book, what is their, what are the pros and cons of having you as their father now being such a recognizable person, a successful person, 
You've reached a lot of people. What do you think you are through their eyes, good and bad, to deal with? I think, you know, I think it's Melanie Klein, right? My brother told me this, and I don't know if it's correct, who said we reproduce in others those emotions we experienced as a child. And I think um, I'm kind of guilty at some level of attempting to replicate some idea of success that I inherited from my dad. Right? And I think it's, it may, I think that's probably pretty standard, you know, for a lot of people. I don't know if that's men or just people in general. And I think that um, against the odds, I think I've, if not achieved it, like I've, I've kind of achieved some version of that, like in my own sphere and in my own world, I've enjoyed a lot of success. And, um, and in the same way that um, as children growing up, my brother and I kind of had to inhabit sort of like, the, you know, the, um, the sort of, so, I don't know how to describe it, but, you know, the, the world in which we grew up was like the world of, oh, our dads pull through, although it didn't mean much to our peer group at school, but it was just like, oh, our dad's kind of a big deal, right? I mean, that was, how can you not, when you see his books, oh, you know, he's, he'd written even then like 20 or 30 books. Now he's written like 50 or 60. All his, his, his office was full of books. Books would arrive from foreign publishers, foreign versions of the books. And it was just a given that he was someone special. And, um, and I think my kids, uh, and, and you know, I, I say it in a purely factual way, have the experience of knowing that um, I'm someone who people recognize who when we're out and about on the subway, on the tube in London, or in, the, in the museum or in a restaurant, people will come up and ask for selfies with me. And um, now I can only assume that has a somewhat similar impact on them. Right. It doesn't mean that for me, like for them, clearly, I'm I'm just dad. I'm someone who uh, plays frisbee with them, makes them dinner, watches TV with them. Right, does all the basic stuff. But they also know that um, out in the world, my name to many people means something. And um, how that will shake out for them in the long run, I'm not really sure. But I do know that for me, what it meant was that I had a need to kind of prove myself in some way. Well, and I, and I wonder, like you talk about your dad coming to your wedding and what you singled out was that he is observant that you are more famous than he is. And I thought it's interesting as you're talking about this competitiveness, objectively, you're much more famous than Paul Threw because literary people are not famous like TV people. Like as you were just saying with publishing a book or an article, it's a medium that's been taken over by a much larger audience elsewhere than your father, and it seemed to definitely pique his interest, if not uh, attack his ego a little bit. And you don't talk about that direct competition, but it seems like there is an indirect kind of, I don't know, comparison, I would say, that you're using him as a bit of a North Star in a lot of ways. Is that fair? Uh, well, I think in the sense that I just sort of mentioned, which is yeah. that um, clearly he was a... a uh, a role model, someone I looked up to, as I did my mum too, by the way. Of course, I, of course. Both my parents I admired. My mum was a producer. She was in charge of arts and features at the World Service, at the BBC World Service. Um, I think that 
for me, like I couldn't help but imbibe some sense of, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. This is who you're supposed to be. Uh, you know, just to mention, you remind me of something. I've never told this story before. It's kind of weird. Like twice in my life, uh, I, probably more, but twice that I remember someone has said to me like, oh, your father is Paul through. Whoa, that must be a lot of pressure to live up to. Like something along those lines, like, mm -hmm. which is a kind of... I don't know how that comes across to you, but when you hear that, it feels faintly undermining, right? Especially as a young man, like if you're like 23, 24. But bizarrely, one of the two times was when I was in Scotland at the Clackaig Inn, which is a mountaineering lodge um, near uh, Glencoe. And I was there with Jimmy Savile. And the person who said it uh, said something along the lines of, wow, your father's Paul through, I am such a fan of his. How do you live up to something like that? And I said, I, I said, uh, by this time I was kind of successful in my own right, so it didn't really bother me too much, although I thought it was kind of an odd thing to say. And I said, well, I guess by making a documentary about Jimmy Savile, because Jimmy Savile was there. It was just bizarre kind of um, synchronicity that uh, it was mentioned in that context. But uh, in the end, you are who you are, and you know, you can't, you know, we're all subject to petty rivalries, right? And some sense of, uh, is so-and-so is doing better or worse than us? And, you know, we're all in different ways trying to measure up, I imagine, to some sense of what our father or mother means to us. But you're right, you're right. And I think when I felt it most acutely, and I mentioned this in the book, was when I was trying to write my first book, and I was like, right. trying to help, and I was like, this is not going well. And like, I'm here trying to... Um, Kind of take on the family business of writing a book and i found it extremely difficult and um i uh i remember feeling like um demoralized and and at times in my life when i felt most professionally demoralized it's been when i've um not always but often it's been to do with trying to write something and struggling with it and thinking exist feeling existentially without value yeah well and I, I wonder also with your father because one of the sections i found most compelling and interesting I, as, as also somebody whose parents separated and and my dad presided over a lot of divorces so there was talk about how awful like what it brought out in people versus you fall in love i, I never could understand how parents couldn't at least be civil to one another whereas my parents were civil but that almost made it more complicated about why they would part, in, in a sense. It's more of a gray area. How old were you when they separated? I was six. Have you read Oliver Stone's uh, memoir? Yeah, I find him interesting. I mean, and the story of, I, what I loved was that he's a kind of, you know, macho, super successful guy, like he's a gr older guy now, and yet he, he's very raw and vulnerable almost childlike on the subject. I was going to say, he's very much like a child that just very arrested. Yeah. And, good when, and quite clearly, I think there's a sort of almost a series of causal links that lead from his parents splitting up to him going to Vietnam. Yeah. Oh, and the, I mean, that's another thing with your dad is, well, two things. One is that I thought it was interesting how you talk a lot about how did I fall into this Michael Moore thing, this sort of happy-go-lucky banana peel that you slipped into a career in a sense, when I'm like, wait a minute, 
This guy is an excellent student. He's at Oxford, and his dad is Paul Theroux. What the hell is he talking about, that he's a strange choice to get into television and, and do journalism? He would Michael Moore would clearly know who you were by your credentials and by your uh, pedigree, wouldn't he? Uh, well, that's a great question. So he would he would not have known who I was, uh, certainly like by my own journalistic merits. Like I was a low level staffer, kind of scratching out small articles and squibs um, for uh, Spy magazine. But uh, he, I, I'm pretty sure he would have heard of my, my father. And I think my, the idea of my father would have been, I think, a mixed kind of um, blessing for, for, for Michael. Like, he would not have liked the idea that I was the child of a literary celebrity, right, and born to privilege. I think he would have liked the idea that I had some association with America. Like and, and and specifically as well, kind of immigrant Catholic America, right? Because mm -hmm. that's the stock that my father came from. You know, he's not he's not sort of East Coast patrician. He's um, squabbling um, blue collar immigrant family, and so I think in some probably would have given me the American connection would have given me a marginal edge. But I think the idea that I was in any way part of a sort of arts or bohemian establishment would not have particularly thrilled him. <laughs> um, I wanted to touch on something. Um, you, you address it in the book, the, the accusation pejoratively, your faux naivete. Um, I watched a long interview that you gave. It's on Nick Brumsfeld's website with him, which was very interesting. And so what I wondered as, again, as a subject matter which lends itself to autobiography, I don't know how intentionally, when you cover wrestling and you get into these problems for kayfabe, for this prohibition on that it's not what it's pretending to be and everything, which you dwelled on, that has an interesting irony in that people are trying to do that with you, with the identity that you're projecting. And in wrestling, once they removed kayfabe, I think in the mid-1990s, it made no difference to their audience. It didn't take away from the emotional stakes for their audience. And I wondered with you, I've not heard Nick Brumsfeld, again, I'm not in England, so I don't know how much attention or scrutiny he's gotten, but I've not heard him scrutinized for a faux naivete with his approach to documentaries, but it does seem like there's a lot of parallels in your work, which I greatly admire. So I wondered, do you agree with, you talk a bit about being a little manipulative with subjects, do you think that had you, and you don't seem to do that as much toward the end of your career. The latter episodes seem much more straightforward. I really feel like I'm seeing you signal of Louis rather than some noise and that opaqueness. So I just wondered as a choice of calibrating who you are, the stage managing and curation, why you would adopt a bit of a character and do you think I'm accurate about portraying that Nick Broomfeld is a bit of a contrast, that there are similarities, but he doesn't seem to be a, a character? Okay, there's a lot of things there that I can address. So the first thing I want to ask about is, did they abandon kayfabe and wrestling in the mid-90s? Because I thought they still maintained a kind of um, a, an element of it being, um, uh, what's the best way of putting it? I thought they didn't like to talk about the fact of it being planned. 
Well, they changed it when one of the, I think two wrestlers were arrested in an accident in a car who were supposed to be mortal enemies. And then they were like, oh, they're friends. What the hell is happening? And it just broke down that it's, then it suddenly became sports entertainment. Prior to that, it was never called that. I, you know, you're, I, I know there was a, I think there might even have been a tax issue where if it was entertainment, it would be taxed at a lower band and it was sports and that Vince McMahon was like, fine, it's not, it's not actually sports, it's entertainment. But, but that being said, um, I, think, I think it's easy to get lost in a kind of binary uh, understanding of what it means to be authentic and what it means to be faux naive or, or like to have a persona. Like, I think it's, it's much more of a spectrum. And I think even in a single program or even in a single conversation, you can move in and out of modes. And I'm not trying to be, like, mysterious about it. I think quite evidently early on, I, I think out, partly out of a sense of um, just figuring out my voice, partly because I thought I, I needed to make the segments as funny as possible, I thought I should um, just kind of send people up by, by playing along with their ludicrous beliefs. And even in the, the first ever segment was probably the most extreme example um, of me where I was talking to cults that think the end of the world is coming. And I was like, well, when is it happening and what's going to happen and what can we do in order to um, not die like in the apocalypse? <laughs> and so that was all part of a like, and yeah, it was a comfortable mode for me because although quite evidently I didn't really believe any of the stuff they were saying, it's, it was fun just sort of being immersed in, in, in the weirdness of their beliefs and playing along with it. Um, later on, I became more confident and I realized that there were times when I needed to challenge and push and all that, you know, uh, just I needed to just take a different role, a role that was sometimes more adversarial, but or sometimes just more friendly and more, more authentic. Uh, but I never totally lost that the, the enjoying that kind of dryness or the dry humor of saying something ludicrous with a straight face. Like as late as 2011, I made a program called Miami Mega Jail, right? And uh, I went into a cell, and I've been told repeatedly that snitches get stitches and that no one ever tells if something happens in the jail right and that i'd been told that like the week before in the jail someone had been stabbed and there was a guy who was sort of um not exactly in charge of the jail but one of the longest standing inmates in there was a tough character i can't remember his name i think it was called larry and i said to larry um i you know someone was stabbed in the cell last week he's like that's right and i said who did it knowing that he wouldn't say like, but it would just create an awkward moment. And obviously like, you could say that's a very naive question, even faux naive, right? But it's a funny question to ask because sometimes it takes a faux naive condeed like <laughs> approach to bring out what's weird. Like I, sometimes it's funny to not buy into um, the code, you know, or the, um, the rule book because uh, sometimes you've got to say, like, well, why is the emperor not wearing any clothes? You know what I mean? Sure. That's not the job of the journalist. On the, on the Broomfield question, uh, so uh, 
he's obviously he's not a TV at the risk of stating the obvious. Nick's not a TV presenter. He's a film director and sound recordist, like who does the sound on his films. Yeah. And so his role in those is somewhat different. Like he um, he is occasionally faux naive. Like I think the best example is in um, the leader, his driver, and the driver's wife, right? Where he 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 keeps he repeatedly turns up late for interviews and then can't understand why. Eugene Terblanche, the Africana uh, racist leader, is annoyed, right? So that's obviously a faux naive technique. I think a lot of it is just him. Um, he has a slightly gormless affect, right? He has a slightly lost, uh, loose, sort of sleepy, like, oh, I was just wondering if we could get a few shots, you know? Whereas, so he, and, and that's okay, because he's not supposed to be a performer. He's there sort of drifting around, um, scooping up his material and doing sound and directing, right? Anyway, I don't so know. I, push, I push back a little on that. I mean, like you, I think when the time comes to get the story, he has huge balls to go after it. I mean, the grim sleeper. I'm not trying to undervalue. No, no, I know, I know. Yeah. He's very, yeah, and he's razor, he's like laser focused in other ways. I guess it is part of who he is, and I think he knows very driven. Like, as a director, I suppose you have to be, and plus, he self finances, or at least he owns his own films. Like, he's not like a jobbing presenter. Like, he goes out and funds his own films, right? Yeah, in a way, like, I think to compare me to him is doing me a huge favor because he's, um, He's a filmmaker, like I, I'm a TV presenter, but he definitely, his persona on camera is a sort of slightly lost and drifty persona. I just, I, my observation, I hope you find it flattering, I mean it so, is that your superpower as a filmmaker, TV presenter, however you want to call it, is you are the smartest person I've ever seen who engenders endless condescension. And I don't know how you do it. I don't know how they assume, because Sasha Baron Cohen definitely gets, it seems like a lot of the editing assists this, the weird reactions and stuff. But for you, it's people explaining themselves, filling in this gap because you're just this clueless person. And then bit by bit, you can put in your razor to go after things when you need to. But I wonder how you, I don't know if you created that persona in some degree or or it was a calculated thing but it seems to happen endlessly in ways that i've never seen these people reveal themselves the way you get them to it seems very uniquely idiosyncratically yours and it's um, like for somebody who i i looked at i went through all your programs again you have a kind of brilliance for high concept clickbait subjects and then there's a depth and pathos that normally does not accompany the high clickbait, high concept things. Um, and partly you do it with, I think, this intelligence, wisdom, empathy, but seemingly responded to as if you're dense, clueless, etc. Thank you for that. That's great. You, I think you've kind of figured it out, friend. <laughs> like, um, I don't even know what to add to that. I do think, I've always said, like, you know, you take, we take subjects that often treated in tabloid form or um, subjects that could be lurid or um, even 
treat it in a voyeuristic way and try and add a little bit of intelligence and sensitivity. Like, I'm very proud to be a TV maker. Like, I grew up watching television. You know when they, HBO used to have um, a campaign that said, it's not television, it's HBO. I always kind of hated that, yeah. you know? I always thought, like, oh, you're going to, like, be part of this genre, but piss on the genre by implying that it's all better, low rent and, and, and kind of anti-intellectual. Um, I think that to the point about being um, condescended to, I, you know, I think not having a profile in the U.S. has always helped. The fact, also the fact that I think people have tended to see that, and this may sound odd, but like I'm, my feelings are kind of easily hurt. And um, I'm quite uh, bullyable, right? You know, you mentioned negged, uh, being negged earlier. Like, I'm quite sensitive. And I think, as weird as it may sound, like, I think people sometimes can pick up on that. And I, um, and I think that licenses my, my interviewees or my subjects to express themselves candidly and sometimes go further than that. And uh, in different ways, well, in a positive way, like confide, or it may be in a kind of more inflected way, just dominate me or push me around or, you know what I mean? Like, like you could see that when I go into the cell in, um, in Miami jail, and there's a guy called Hot Rod, different calendar, not Larry, but this time it's Hot Rod, and you just see the pleasure on his face uh, of, of thinking like, here's this like dweeby British guy who um, I'm going to have some fun with. You know what I mean? Sure. And he, he throws the N-word at me and says like, are you a real one? And um, and I have a moment of panic, which I managed to conceal, which is like, how am I going to get up? How am I going to continue this conversation without using any kind of racially insensitive language? So I just say back to him, what do you think? Anyway, he just enjoys the dance of knowing that I'm someone that he could make mincemeat of. And I think that goes across the board. One of my earliest segments that I'm still, you know, think holds up pretty well from the TV Nation days was a segment I did about Ted Nugent. And the words kind of resonate with me to this day. I said to him a couple of times, like I said one or two questions that he regarded as, I guess, offensive. One was like, it was right after the bombing of the Oklahoma City building by Timothy McVeigh. And I said, well, it seems to me like the, I said, why is your flag at half mast? He said, in honor of the dead at Oklahoma City. I said, but it seems like the people in the frame for doing that are somewhat, you know, in the same profile as you, like kind of Michigan gun owners. Because one of them, Timothy McVeigh was said to have a collaborator, Terry McNichol, I think he had a connection to the Michigan militia, or so it was alleged at that time. Yeah. And, um, and just that question made Ted Nugent go nuts, sort of understandably. I was sort of saying, like, so you kind of bombed the Oklahoma City building yourself, Ted. Right. And he said, you lying sack of shit. That's not even close. And, and, he, and then he controlled himself. But, and that happened one or two other times. And I remember saying to him at one point, I was like, I want to ask you a question, but I'm afraid. Because the second or third time it happened, I was feeling a little bruised, right? Because when someone's yelling at you and calling you a lying sack of shit, it can make you feel like it's 
it's about as discombobulating as you might think it would be, right? So yeah. I said, like, if I ask you this question, you're going to, I want to ask it, but you're going to go, I'm afraid you're going to go nuts again. He goes like, yeah, that's because you're so easy to do that to. And afterwards I was like, yeah, maybe that's my gift is like, I'm quite easy to become enraged at, like a really wonderful quality to have as a journalist. You know what I mean? Like, what are, how lucky that I am someone who, who volatile, um, people find it easy to sort of get to rage at me. And that served me well. Like many of the best moments from my programs have involved Scientologists, crazed South African lion breeders, um, porn performers to kind of just kind of fly off the handle and create wonderful television. Um, Truffaut, why his films didn't age? And his suspicion was that because it was never dealing with any outward psychologies, it was a completely self-contained psychology of Hitchcock. We're only dealing with Hitchcock in every single movie. So all these things get repeated. Um, and I wondered about that with you. I mean, the, the name of this podcast is Tourist Information. Is There is an element of tourism to what you're doing, I guess, uncharitably. I could call it that, I, I think. Um, I certainly see myself in journalism in the Janet Malcolm sense that we're exploiting subjects to some degree, whether we like it or not. But I also wondered... On reflection, as you talk about your private life in this book, more and more this seems less like tourism and more sort of along the lines of uh, like what Lawrence of Arabia, that great line, I fear you're one of these desert-loving English, that when you talk about what you look for in stories, I want stakes, I want something at, state, uh, at stake, um, I want, you know, conflict. And then when you talk about yourself, I see ambivalence, awkwardness, conflict avoidant, um, passive. While we're staying in, in marriage even, it seems very passive. And so I'm wondering, when you look at this, is there an element of therapy? Because you do see there is a big arc in the Louis that I see on screen from the early days to the latter ones. It's much more serious pedophilia, the Savile revisiting, which is a revisiting of you as much as it is about him with the story. Do you reevaluate your, this 25 year body of you that's available? That it's like, as much as the subjects are there, but also that you're there and display. I just noticed the private versus the professional is a big thing with you. The, the line between the two, the threshold. Wow, there's a lot there in that question, Bryn. Uh, I think um, I think I I part of why I do my work is a kind of compensation for you know for certain lacks certain absences in my own um, kind of my own I don't want to say life but my own way of doing things my own way of behaving like let me simplify it a bit which is that. Yeah, I am somewhat conflict avoidant. I am somewhat passive. And I think I find I sometimes view relationships um, as behind, almost like behind a glass. I think we were speaking earlier about anxiety. Like, I don't find intimacy easy. Like, I was once asked, um, what do you find shocking, right? After all the work that you've 
done in all this world. And I said something like, um, I find like one night stands shocking. Like the whole idea of mm. picking someone up in a bar and then going back and taking cl your clothes off and having sex. And then the next day saying, that was great. Thanks. Bye. Um, I find that on one level really weird. And it's not something, I mean, I've, you know, it's not something I've ever, I've ever done. I don't have a moral issue with it, but I think, I, and I only mention it because um, I think um, it must say something about me because in the real world, that's viewed as completely normal. Well, and, and you say, this blew me away with the book because I think it's a much darker book than I anticipated from the show. Um, that as we're talking about all the eccentricities and the strangeness and the deviancy of the people you're covering, when you're revealing the personal life, this is a quote, um, I've never learned a knack for being single because of a fear of intimacy, negotiation, um, but I needed a friendly looking body in the house a bit like Jeffrey Dahmer. And I thought, Louis, that's a very scary place to go as, the, I mean, I would say it's darker than Jimmy Savile's <laughs> point to begin with. What Sid was like, I needed friendly looking bodies around the house, a bit like Jeffrey Dahmer propping up the corpses of his victims yes. around the flat. Now, to be fair, it was intended as a joke. I mean, you know, but it's dark. It's, it's pretty, it, it sounds to me when you talk about that correctness is the number one priority of being married. You didn't say that specifically, but you talked about being correct should fix everything. Well, that I wanted to separate correctly, that when we split up, uh, that we should do it correctly and no one else should be involved and we should sort of shake hands and kind of um, sort of say, well done and thank you and <laughs> be a good show. You know what I mean? And it just, it sounded like, like Mr. Grady and the Shining, correctness. It's again, it's, it's out more like in sort of like um, whatever the name of the butler is in the remains of the day. Right. Is that feeling of like, well, you really, it's okay to have emotions, but you know, it would be great if your subconscious could kind of put them in an email, right? Or maybe write them on an embossed. Um, notepaper and send them to you. Do you know what I mean? Like another theme of the book is the idea of like my emotional life remaining somewhat opaque to myself and, and, and kind of comparing um, it to like trying to get a, a message on a staticky radio. Like what do I actually feel about this? Um, maybe just a couple more questions. Would that yeah. be okay? Sure. Um, so I will try to do the fun stuff externally about your subjects and then just circle once back once more back to you uh, as a last thing um do you think with the michael jackson documentary that with terry george you are the first person to get a victim uh the first victim like i mean on tv i know that the newspapers covered it but terry george was 13 michael jackson was 21 it's 1979 is that the first credible accusation against Michael Jackson that we are aware of? It's the first one that I know of. Yeah. You really did your homework, Brent. I appreciate it. Um, it's the first one that I know of. Important to note, though, uh, I believe that Terry does not identify as a victim or indeed as a survivor. Like, I, he may have changed his position on this, 
Terry was at that time of the view that he did not feel um, ill-used or abused. That being said, in any conventional understanding, that was a form of abuse, right? To, to subject a, a child to um, explicit sexual talk and as it would seem to be like, the, the, the account describes Michael Jackson masturbating on the phone when he's age 21, speaking to Terry George, who was then, what, 13, was it? 13. Which I think is really revealing. It would make perfect sense because I think, in the sense that I don't think Michael Jackson's abuse went into high drive until he'd left Havenhurst, like the family, uh, the family home where all the Jacksons lived in the valley and moved into Neverland, at which point he was no longer under the kind of parental roof and had the space and the, and the kind of autonomy to, um, to groom and abuse children. And it certainly set a template, didn't it, for future behavior. I mean, if he's soliciting, I think Terry was 12 when they met, but the, the allegation happened when he was 13. But the grooming and the behavior from leaving in the Neverland, leaving Neverland that's documented, do you have any doubts that Michael was doing this all the way along through his adulthood? Well, I don't know what the time scale of when it was happening, but um, I, I, there's no question in my mind that uh, he groomed and abused Geordie Chandler, James Safechuck, and Wade Robson. And it seems highly likely that he groomed and abused other children. Because there's no other sex life he seems to be having aside from these children. That I'm, I'm, I've seen some places like Vanity Fair document he was never sexually involved with a female or a male adult that I'm aware of. Correct. I mean, what, are we supposed to believe that he was having sex with um, Debbie Rowe and Lisa Marie Presley? It just doesn't pass the smell test, right? I well, mean, even the body language with the children is possessive in a way that it certainly was not with women. Yeah. And, um, but I think we're on the same page. I mean, I've spoken out a few times on Twitter about this, and you get an extraordinary level of uh, hostility from the rabid Jack Jackson fans yeah. who sort of view him as an almost kind of, um, messianic figure, figure of unimpeachable purity. It just seemed to me that when you, when you showed that to me through the program, I completely made, like, all of a sudden I was like, he is absolutely what these accusations are. I completely believe Terry George. The accusation seems totally credible. Even if it's not sexual, what is a 21-year-old man doing with a 12-year-old who knocks on his door at a hotel room calling him hours and hours? It's so strange and peculiar and alarming. I also think that, and this goes to the Jimmy Savile um, story as well, I often find those accounts of abuse most compelling when they are told by the, um, the person who suffered the abuse without animosity, right? Yes. You know, I found what in the Savile case, the, the first victim who for me was totally persuasive was Cat Ward, who we feature in the film. And, and her point is, is like, yes, I was more or less um, persuaded as a child into giving, as a vulnerable 
child into giving him a blowjob, right, in his Rolls Royce. I think she would have been about 15. I can't remember exactly. And um, but she says, like, I've been through so much in my life being abused by other people, right? Her stepfather and his friends. Fresh used that it was not that big a deal, really. You know, and with Terry, Terry George, what comes across is that, yeah, he what he values is the friendship. He regards um, the the fact of 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 having to kind of, you know, listen to a, a sex act while on the phone to the biggest pop star and one of the biggest pop stars in the world. Like, he, he doesn't seem to have seen that as a big deal. Right. And people are entitled to experience, to have their experiences, you know, in their own way. So, but for me, it, like, that feels almost, um, I, you know, as weird as it is, it's those, in, the inconvenient or kind of strangeness of that, makes it feel more persuasive in an odd way because there's oh, yeah. no attached to it. I thought so too, because he said he wanted to ha maintain a friendship. I don't know why everybody dwells on this sexual thing that Michael had. Like we had a good relationship. I miss him. And I thought people miss that, as you pointed out in, in the Savile documentary, it's not monsters doing this. It's people they care about. It's people in authority. They don't think of it as, traumatic and, and that's what seems so particularly insidious is like um the leaving neverland safe chuck and and the other i sorry i forget his name wade robson is that we were groomed before we met him fame is its own grooming i mean even i often think about even on a corporate level mcdonald's or starbucks is trying to get at kids it's trying to get you the way the church was getting at you as young as possible where you can't not have a time where it's there working on you a little bit. Um, and by the way, yeah, some of the most affecting parts of um, leaving Neverland was w watching um, James Safechuck and realizing that there's a lot of this whole experience that he hasn't really processed, right? And that whereas you get the feeling that Wade Robson's thinking about this maybe he's been in therapy he's arrived at a place where he basically at this point i think expresses a kind of a straightforward sense of revulsion at what he was forced to endure james Safechuck, there's a part of him that seems to still have very fond feelings for michael jackson and it's really I, it's, it's very powerful and quite hard to watch um those moments where i was told by the director I went to a special um, pre-transmission pre screening and that the last scene he shot was um, the scene in which James Safechuck shows him the ring. It's kind of like a wedding ring. Do you remember that sequence? Absolutely, yeah. And at which point I think um, it was just bringing up too much and um, James stopped filming at that point. Let's switch to something a little lighter <laughs> um, to to go out on. Um, one of my favorite episodes of yours, I think the one I've rewatched the most, just because it's just, um, there's so much pleasure attached to it, is the Thai Brides episode, because Lake Palmer seems like one of the most lovable people, even though the circumstances are pretty challenging. Is Lake Palmer still with us on this earth? You know, that's a great question. I have a feeling that he may not be, but yeah. it, it was interesting to see how 
that was one of those programs we made more through kind of desperation of not having other options and then that ended up being far more interesting and 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 kind of um just sort of weird i guess than we could have expected and the late palmer developed a kind of cult following afterwards and became a meme for a while you know some of the phrases he used uh and i saw him a couple of times in great yarmouth of course we were, i have a house i have a house in great yarmouth yeah paid for oh no paid i don't think his house i think he rents his house but he's like he talks about his car that's paid for i i, I don't know that he's with us i have a sneaky suspicion you may have shuffled off this mortal coil. Is there a metaphor in Thai brides? Because again, these are some of the strangest people in the strangest circumstances. But what I was thinking was, in hindsight, with a 25-year career, you've spent more time with your subjects than many of these people did with their wives. Well, um, yes, in that case I did. But um, what is the metaphor there, though, do you think? Well, that... Aren't all these subjects kind of a quick speed dating for you of a kind of marriage where you're getting at them with questions? I mean, I've just met you. We've exchanged a number of emails, but I feel very uncomfortable asking about personal things with somebody I don't know. I have no right to ask you beyond I've asked for an interview. There you are with a camera and you're revealing these people in ways that maybe there was uh, no other way to hold up a candle to who they were that would be as quite as illuminating for good and, and, and ill. Um, I, I, I think that's valid. Like, I think I used to sometimes use the metaphor of comparing uh, the kind of journalism that I did to a sort of um, prostitution. I don't really like that term, but sex work, you know, I would call it now, where um, if you are in a kind of concentrated and slightly constructed space producing a form of intimacy that is in some ways confected, but in other ways real, right? Right. And, um, you know, there's a reason why a certain kind of journalism, you mentioned Janet Malcolm, and she famously um, dissected what's sometimes called seduce and betray journalism, right? And that idea of seduction, uh, or the idea of, um, yeah, kind of coaxing intimacy or, or producing intimacy. Uh, I, I certainly see certain parallels. I do think, though, that with Janet Malcolm, you know, I think her foible as a writer, like as brilliant as she is, is to sort of overstate the case out of a sort of, um, I'm going to drag myself down and I'm going to drag the, 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 the whole uh, profession of journalism down by reducing it to its ugliest characterization. Anyone who's not too stupid to recognize it, you know, has to acknowledge that what we do is morally indefensible, right? Something like that. And actually, like, well, sometimes, but not always, you know, I, it feels to me sort of like a, a sort of swaggering, mis misanthropic, take on journalism and i actually think there are times when that's true and times when you can make something that's a win-win you know not to sound really glib about it, sometimes you can have a great relationship with your subjects you can show something they're happy about it you're happy about it does that make sense 
Yeah, and I, I mean, she's probably just nagging because I think journalists are insecure, and and if you put us down, a lot of us go, it must be true because I hate myself or whatever. Yeah, um, there's a sort of like, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's sort of like when um, hearing the worst character, the worst construction putting on something is exactly it's nagging and it's very it gets your attention. It's like when a plumber arrives and he looks at your boiler that's broken and 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 they shake their head and whistle and go. Who, who, who fixed this last time? What? Oh, you know, like they, they can't believe how bad the last person was. And you're like, uh oh, at least finally I've got someone who knows what they're doing, you know, and you know, exactly as an insecure, um, tribe that we journalists can't help, um, listening to the, to the sort of Cassandras who are telling us that we are involved in a kind of morally unforgivable. Right. Right. Okay. Last question, Louis, and I apologize for running over. Don't you think, Brent, that's bullshit? Don't you think, like, that's that's kind of ridiculous. I think it's bull. I mean, I think that there's always a chat. I mean, in any relationship, if somebody goes into it and it goes to shit, you're going to blame the other person, and there's ample ammunition if you want it. Nobody's, nobody's, they're all electing to participate in these interviews. I think what Malcolm's talking about, your subjects, yeah, actually, she's talking specifically about Jeffrey McDonald and Joe McGinnis, right? Right. Extreme, it's kind of the nay blues ultra of seduce and betray journalism. But, you know, that doesn't, that's not like the gold standard for all journalism, you know? No. Uh, that's not what um, uh, George Clinton did, right? That's not what Hemingway did in his journalism or... Gabriel Garcia Marquez in his journalism. So, uh, so, it's, so, you know, do me a favor. Well, no, and I wonder, I'd like to end with you. I was just saying, I apologize for taking up too much of your time, but um, I always wonder journalistically how much of what we're doing is seeking something versus running from something. And your father brings that up. I have one of my favorites of his books is where he curated the Tao of travel and it has a lot of his own work, but it also collects a lot of others. And that's a real theme of this dialectic, which challenges our self-awareness as travel writers about, are we trying to run away from home, run away from family, run away from a lot of things? Well, under the headline of we're seeking these things, we're trying to find something. Does this book, uh, this opportunity to sort of meditate on your career after so much action, traveling and seeking and, and all of that, has that uh, scale changed when you look at your own career of how much of it was seeking versus fleeing from something? I think that I'm more comfortable um, sort of with, with so the immersion in home life now and I do think that before I met my wife Nancy I was guilty of um, I don't know if it was running away or just trying to find something but it was some kind of avoid some kind of emotional avoidance right and I think now is you know a lot we started by talking about the pandemic part of what was enjoyable about that was you know, God, I feel weird even saying that, but certainly the lockdown experience was being forced to sort of travel at home. You know, if you if you if, if by travel you understand 
that to mean observe, um, experience, document, think about, right? I felt like, um, I know I kept a diary, I'm still keeping it fairly intensively through the whole, you know, since March when it was announced, the, you know, through the lockdown and, and realized I was kind of um, just transferring that skill, observational skill set to the home front, right? And um, which you could say, well, that sounds pretty weird, but I think it, maybe that's not weird, maybe that's healthy. Like if I can be more present, if I can be more um, just involved in my own life instead of other people's lives, you know? And I think I talk about that in the book. There's some bit where I go like, are the qualities that make me good at my job of documenting and exploring and immersing part of what makes me not very good as a, my a being a human, like, or at least being a kind of emotionally mature uh, human who's a decent father and, and husband. And, you know, I think I'm getting, but I think I'm getting better at that. Uh, so uh, thank you, COVID, for being for that journey. Thank I you, Anne. Thank you, all the scientists who <laughs> the virus, your research. Thank you. <laughs> My last quick thing is just to ask if there is a string theory and there's a counterfactual to your career, what are the three most fun subjects that you would have tackled if you had another 25 years of wonderful TV programs to embark on? Who would be the three that you would seek out now, now that we have the benefit of hindsight to know interesting stories that were there? Do you mean in the past or in the future? In the past, in the, like if you could redo those 25 years, um, you've got these ones. I feel I missed, like there's a few that I feel like, oh, I could have done that and I missed it. Yeah, 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 that's exactly what I mean. Uh, well, one is, but I couldn't really have done it, but if I'd had the balls or figured out a way of doing it, I sort of regard ISIS as the most quintessential, if I can refer to myself in the third person very grandiosely. Please do. I prefer it. essential like Louis Theroux subject like it it, you, it would be because you've got uh, organized madness right it's you know the Nietzsche quote that I often find most apposite is the one where he says um, madness in individuals is rare but in nations religions and something something it is the norm mm. and it's that form of like oh it's kind of like you know Oh, people are going around burning people to death and um, crucifying people and pushing gay people off tall buildings, right? All in the name of religion. And they're also doing a great job of collecting the trash, collecting taxes, fixing the roads. Like, it's not psychosis. Like, it's tempting to say, like, oh, this is like a mass psychosis. But it isn't. Like, it's, it's people um, just applying a kind of medieval theology like irrational and sane people applying kind of medieval uh, handbook to how they structure their their society. So I, anyway, needless to say, I, I never went out there because I was um, too worried about what would happen. So that would be number one. Number two, uh, on a more prosaic note, I did a story, one of the first stories I did, I, th I think I mentioned about apocalyptic groups, and one of them was called run by a guy called Harold Camping. Long story short, in 2011, he predicted the end of the world 
again. Because the first time was in 94, he said the world was going to end. Second time was 2011. And he said, this time it's real. Like, last time I got the dates wrong. This time it's really happening. And um, a lot of his followers, of whom he had thousands, went out and sold their houses. They thought it was, you know, they made real world decisions. So the idea of an apocalyptic prophecy and following, and I had an invitation more or less to, to see what was happening. And um, I never did the story. I think I was in, busy with the Miami jail or something else was going on. And I slightly regret that. Like, I think that would have been a good one. You said three, right? Yeah, if, if you'll indulge me. It's not a celebrity. I mean, I love your meditations on fame. I, uh, it seemed like you kind of shit on the Michael Jackson one. That was one of my absolute favorites, meeting Joe and meeting the magician who just died. Magic with a K, Majestic with a K. Uh, would be amazing. Yeah, majestic, Magnificent. He did die. Yeah, you're right. Thank you for that. I would think, like, I'd like to imagine... There's something in the, I, this may be something we can still do. Like, I would love to um, tell the story of Geordie Chandler. Oh, huh. Like, I sort of regard, um, and if you've read in that subject and the account, you know, some of the court documents and the strangeness of that whole, um, in a way, you could, but at this point, it's sort of like, well, because of leaving Neverland, what more is there to add but, it's such an extraordinary story of, um, of abuse, but, you know, the, it's kind of like, I don't mean to in any way trivialize it, but, you know, it's like a kind of uh, child abuse version of Notting Hill. Right, the Hugh Grant film, like the one of the biggest stars in the world, um, wanders into your dad's business because he needs a car, like rent a wreck, and um, and that's how they first enter into each each other's lives, and then the the, the awfulness. I mean, I think it may, maybe it's too horrible and too dark, but the, the strangeness of how then there becomes a time when you always get the feeling that. This, these divorced parents of, of the kid, Wooden Chandler, are arguing over custody of Michael Jackson. Mm. Right. You know, they, they both want access not to Geordie so much as to Michael. What do, you, what do you make? I mean, I saw Michael Jackson when I was four. He came to he came to Vancouver while I was there. My uncle took me, and he showed up two hours late. So I ended up sleeping through the entire thing. But Michael's fame, which you and I were both alive for when it was its real peak, um, it's been a lot to deal with somebody in plain sight who wrote songs like "Keep It in the Closet," and people are shocked that this was there when it didn't seem like there was any other explanation about this. And same with Lance Armstrong. Everything is pointing that this is a lie, but people want the lie. Or O.J. Simpson could never have done this, and it dividing down racial lines. This seems like your your territory. This area of the psyche glomming on to certainty with things, despite all evidence in opposition to it. 
Yeah, well, and that's where, you know, that's our job as writers and journalists to, um, to try and keep the facts in people's faces, right? I mean, I guess to some extent there's a level of necessary hypocrisy, but, um, you know, in other words, I think most people who had any sense knew that Michael Jackson was a pedophile, right? But um, what were you going to do about it, right? I mean, you just had to um, suck up the cognitive dissonance of seeing him, uh, you know, celebrated and treated as a humanitarian. Thank you so much, Louis. I really appreciate your time. Would you later? Likewise. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.